So next one up is The Verge. While critics liken the iPhone 13 to an iterative 12, iPhone 12S update, the branding shows Apple has adjusted to the current smartphone market where big overhauls are rare. Apple's S-year iPhones never went away. It's just stopped advertising them. Apple had a lot of... So I, I tend to agree here. I feel like tra in tradition, they probably should have named this one iPhone 12S, but I think they know um, there was more excitement by calling it 13 or whatever. It's a little cleaner because Google's not doing Pixel 4, 4S, 5, 5S. They're doing Pixel 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So, um, yeah. The next one from the Wall Street Journal, and maybe M Michelle can steer us through this one. The Wall Street Journal is on uh, on a hot streak of creating a hot mess over at Facebook, and specifically a gentleman by the name of Jeff Horwitz apparently has an internal source at Facebook who's providing internal documents of multiple kinds that he's now um, releasing on a, on a daily basis here for the past four days, uh, wall street journal has been writing um, heat filled headlines uh, that painting Facebook as very untrustworthy. And, and he says, you know, there's more to come and he's got in his Twitter bio. If you work at Facebook and you want to send me stuff, here's my personal cell phone number. And so, one question here is why is the Wall Street Journal uh, on a on a mission against Facebook, and who is leaking the information to the Wall Street Journal? Who is the mole? Who is the leaker that's giving Jeff Horowitz these internal documents? One, one for example, one such document was a presentation uh, reportedly shared to senior leadership that says Instagram is hurting young girls and we know it. And what are we doing about it? And really not much was done about it and, and, and the likes. So um, similarly, internal documents show that Facebook's own research found that a 2018 uh, change that they made to encourage positive interactions. And by the way, kudos for that. Um, but had the opposite effect as was intended. It had negative reactions. And even in realization of this, and, and as a result of their own research, finding that uh, it says Zuckerberg resisted any fixes, uh, even in light of the fact that uh, um, there were you know negative reactions to whatever this change was. So uh, I had asked, uh, we, ha we have the beautiful luxury of having Michelle join us nearly every day, which we're incredibly grateful for, who works at Facebook in the kind of comms PR uh, role, of which there's you know, hundreds and hundreds of people in Facebook who work in, you know, th this is a company that has, you know, huge teams of people um, who work in comms and PR. And they have, you know, they're all like, a, they're like a government, practically, they have, they have to coordinate, and they are very strategic. And um, have a process for how they handle these kinds of things and very, very intelligent for very important legal reasons. So uh, with all the respect in the world, um, we're, you know, hoping uh, Michelle can, 
you know, at some point they're going to make a decision how they're going to respond to the, with the Wall Street Journal and their hot streak of recent headlines, trying, you know, painting a, a very unflattering picture uh, of Facebook. And uh, I, I, me, I think I'd, I, I speak for everybody that we're kind of eagerly awaiting Facebook's reactions to this. Maybe they're going to wait until there's a pause <laughs> to to see. Uh, uh, how 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 this is going to shake out? Is there is there, is there uh, any kind of um, info to be shared at this point, Michelle? Yeah, I can I can maybe share like a broad stance. Um, okay. I, and uh, Adam Mosseri also made a comment on that on uh, on Twitter. I think it was yesterday or the day before. But the at least at first, what it seems to be and what I'm saying is likely to evolve, but it looks like there was a bit of a stitching going on here, um, taking old sources and a lot of the things have evolved. There are still a lot of things that needs to be fixed in what was brought up. But I think the intention here is not necessarily to show the true picture. It's more to tell the story they want to tell. And now they're just kind of looking for elements to add to that, to that story, you know? So the headline is fixed and now, all the data sources and not all of them are still relevant. I don't know if, if that gives you a bit of a, a picture of what's going on. Okay. Um, well, keep us updated with whatever you can, whenever you can. Um, and uh, we it's much appreciated. Of course. Yeah. And also just, um, I mean, the, the, It's from 2018 and the system has evolved since then, you know, so not everything there is, has a comprehensive and coherent timeline. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the next biggest story at the moment from the verge, Microsoft will now let users access accounts without a password by using Microsoft authenticator kind of like Google's been doing for a few years now, and uh, and a security key or a verification code. And the security key thing is becoming the hot thing. Um, it's hardware. It, it's very difficult to hack, practically impossible. It's like having a physical key to your house. You now have a physical key to your devices. And unless somebody gets that physical key from you, um, they're not really going to be able to get into your devices. So if you use that as your way of authenticating. Um, so I imagine due to all of the hacking and whatnot, uh, that's why Google employees are all using physical keys now for the most part, and perhaps to minimize, it might become, you know, get ready. Cause it's, I'm, I'm expecting this is likely to become a very popular thing, um, just as physical keys are for our houses. So the next big one is from Bloomberg that discord says it has raised $500 million led by Dragoneer, Fidelity, and others, uh, sources say, at the $15 billion valuation. And Discord, if I recall correctly, was rumored to, they received an offer from Microsoft, if I recall correctly. Aaron might know, being that Aaron's at Fidelity. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember that headline. And it was also around the $15 billion, uh, no, or 10, was it? I don't It was a headline months ago. I thought Discord got bought by Microsoft already. That they were, they were, it made, made an offer and then they, it didn't go through, as I recall. 
but let's just do a very fast uh, Google search for Discord Microsoft. This is where so much information comes in so fast for us that we're having trouble uh, holding on to it. Yeah, it was 10 billion and it was Microsoft. So my memory serves me well. It was May 25th. Discord CEO on Microsoft bid. We did receive a lot of offers. Microsoft reportedly made a $10 billion offered bid for Discord and they didn't do it. So, but now the valuation at 15 billion uh, and a 500 million led by Dragonair, Fidelity and others. And Discord is kind of in the same space as Clubhouse to a degree. Um, they do a lot of audio. It's it's um, most widely known and used as a way for video game streamers to talk uh, with their teams and their f- people who watch the teams play in real time. And it's evolved into a lot other than that. It's te- kind of like an audio version of Slack in a way. Teams are using it to talk in groups when clubhouse came out they did add a very clubhousey like interface as well uh for those who like the clubhousey uh interface and um yeah it's qu- quite a little quite a little uh success story going on over there at discord and uh, congrats to them on the fundraising the next one from MIT tech review they say they have sources that US firm called Acuvent now part of Optiv sold iPhone hacking tool Karma to the UAE for $1.3 million in 2016. The tool has been used against hundreds of targets. An American cybersecurity firm was behind the 2016 iPhone hack sold to a group of mercenaries and used by the United Arab Emirates. And we, there was a story yesterday rather similar to this that Uh, The Department of Justice is now going after three American intelligence folks, uh, a.k.a. FBI, former FBI agents, potentially. Or no, they said they were NSA, to be specific. Um, And that these NSA, former NSA gentlemen, had built some hacking tools for the UAE. And now they're paying some rather hefty fines because that's against the law to do that. And now, and this this I assume this is a totally separate thing, but interesting. Two days in a row that uh, U.S. firms now providing hacking tools to the UAE. Two days in a row. What? what yeah, the- and, and the real and Tyler, the real controversy about that, and the reason the U.S. government went after these guys is because those three NSA hackers hacked the U.S. Right. If it was some other country, I don't think they would have bothered so much, but because they went and hacked in the U.S. itself. So. Mm-hmm. So the next one uh, from Bloomberg ThoughtWorks shares close up 40 percent in its Nasdaq debut, valuing the company at nine billion dollars. Um, I don't really have any thoughts on that. The next one from TechCrunch, a, c- a company called Apna, whose networking app lets blue-collar workers upskill and find jobs, raises $100 million, led by Tiger, Tiger Global, becoming India's youngest unicorn. Jesus, they had another one yesterday and another one today. So already two this week. So, uh, yeah. 27, another, 27 this year. Yeah, at least. We had two in the last two days. Yeah. So another Indian unicorn. just. To- absolute tremendous explosion of unicorns in India in 2021. At this rate, you might 
get to 40 by the end of the year. It's true, just unbelievable. 40 unicorns in a year for one country. It's just that I don't, that would be impressive for America at the peak of our unicorn generation in Silicon Valley. So it's like unbelievable. Um, and the, this, but this category of upskilling of what this is called upskilling of basically helping com- companies who have lots of um, team members who they need to help educate. And rather than send those team members to colleges, kind of the traditional route of upskilling, you could think, I mean, universities are in the business of upskilling, but upskilling, the term is going to, you're going to hear that word a lot in the next couple of years. That's going to be a super hot category. There's going to be a whole bunch of unicorns in the upskilling game. And just like buy now, pay laters have a hard time failing and they all seem to become unicorns. Upskilling is also going to be one of those categories where it's going to be kind of hard to lose because it's essentially uh, an, a, a learning program customized for a big, 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 big company with lots of money to spend to educate their team members to become more valuable team members. And you can imagine, you can show them the math, uh, we can, you know, help you up, upskill your team members so that they're worth a lot more. And we're only going to charge you uh, 5% of that value that we're going to help create within the company. So there's incredibly low risk in that sales pitch. So there's going to be very big adoption. It's a win-win. And so not a surprise to see a new unicorn in upskilling. We will see many more. Goldman's the next one's from CNBC that says Goldman Sachs is acquiring buy now pay later fintech Green Sky for about two point two four billion in an all stock deal. Goldman Sachs acquiring fintech lender Green Sky as the investment banker pushes further into consumer finance. There you go, as yeah. advertised. <laughs> when are you starting Tyler Pay? <laughs> exactly, Tech News Pay. Yeah, you can. And then, um, sorry, we have some friends down in the audience. Okay, right? thanks. Garrett, so. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah, I mean, anyone else interested in launching a buy now, pay later? Is, is Does anyone have a part of the world where they are living where there isn't a buy now, pay later that we can um, create a, a quick billion dollars, over, you know, in short order? Um, it, you know, um, Tyler, yes. having all those, uh, a lot of them yesterday, um, you know, getting ready for the Technics Africa room, I actually saw one of the very first Africa's um, the collection startup because <laughs> those by now the pay later are, are, are coming, but there are also a little bit of defaults coming up as well. And uh, I think governments are a little bit cracking down on an ethical way of uh, trying to force people to pay back. So I was surprised Africa is having its own uh, first uh, debt collection as well. So there you go. Opportunities left and right. Uh So the next one is uh, one second here. Let's see the next one up. Thought works. We got Goldman Sachs. Adobe says it will launch a payment service via PayPal for Adobe Commerce by the end of the year, adding native payments to customers' digital storefronts. Ah, 
So they want to get into the little bit of the Shopify game. Um, yeah, and I, I, I can imagine that PayPal would love to get into the Shopify game because they kind of started out in that, you know, enabling finance for people selling on eBay, for example. Uh, Adobe Commerce, adding native payments to customers' digital storefronts. So I imagine what's going on here is uh, Adobe Commerce, I imagine they're gonna, Adobe's going to make it easier for people to make little commerce stores because, as we've said countless times here in Tech News Around the World, there's going to be a mad rush for everybody to make little mom-and-pop shops. Every single shop on the planet needs to become e-commerceified. And boy, does every restaurant know it. Restaurants already understand you either become part of an app, which is their version of e-commerce, and for delivery, or you die during COVID. You're, you had two choices as a restaurant. You either shut down or you partner with, uh, fortunate for them, they had these apps they could partner with. As a flower store, you can't really partner uh, and you need to make your own little, you know, digital experience uh, like a Shopify store and become part of a bigger network somehow. And so I imagine Adobe and others are going to realize, oh, Jesus, um, just like there was a huge market to make websites for people in the 80s and making apps for people uh, in the 2000s, uh, now we need to make little storefronts for every single billions of small stores. And so far, you know, Shopify is just dominating in that space because they've they, they've made it super easy and i think Adobe correctly realizes the, the tremendous opportunity i'm i'm really just guessing here but then the they don't adobe isn't you know there's the finance part as well and so paypal can be their partner in the finance part of that so uh, Adobe saying it will launch a payment service via PayPal for Adobe Commerce by the end of the year, adding native payments for cu customers' digital storefronts. I'm just guessing, but that's what I would be doing if I was Adobe and PayPal. So uh, maybe maybe I'm projecting. Um, um, uh, just one one just to add one startup that started in Nigeria. Uh, it is called Our Pass. They are actually integrating and facilitating all e-commerce um, e-commerce uh, startups and businesses so that it becomes like one click checkout for all of them and they are uh, they secured actually one million pre-seed funding in order to uh, uh, go all over Africa so yeah there you go um, there are a lot of uh, interested parties even in that small um, startup everybody want to be in e-commerce and everybody want to have one click checkout and, and just make it easy for everyone to buy. Yep. So the next one is from The Verge. Senator Markey and representatives Castor and Trahan wrote to Facebook calling on it to abandon its plans to launch an Instagram app for kids in light of Wall Street Journal's reports. Oh boy. So um, these Wall Street Journal reports the last four days are already having a toll. And here's the headline. Top lawmakers on the Senate Commerce Committee's panel over consumer protection said they were launching a probe into Facebook 
after the Wall Street Journal reported Tuesday that the company was aware of the harm Instagram can cause on teenage girls. Senators Richard Blumenthal uh, and Marsha Blackburn announced their investigation into Facebook in a statement released Tuesday. The senators said that they were in touch with a Facebook whistleblower Yep, and would seek new documents and witness testimony from the company related to the reporting. Here's the quote. It is clear that Facebook is incapable of holding itself accountable. The Wall Street Journal's reporting reveals Facebook's leadership to be focused on growth at all costs mindset that values profits over the health and lives of children and teens, the lawmakers said. When given the opportunity to come clean to us about their knowledge of Instagram's impact on young users, Facebook provided evasive answers that were misleading and covered up clear evidence of significant harm. House lawmakers also criticized Facebook over the journal's new reporting, and Republicans even issued a new amendment to the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation seeking to address tech's effects on teens. Representative uh, from Florida introduced the measure that would direct the Federal Trade Commission to go after unfair and deceptive acts or practices targeting our children's mental health and privacy by social media. The amendment failed. Uh, Representative Ken Buck, top Republican at the House Judiciary Committee Antitrust Subcommittee, said in a tweet, Big Tech has become the new big tobacco. Facebook is lying about how their product harms teens. A group of Democrats, including Senator Ed Markey and Kathy Castor and Lauren Trahan, penned a letter to Facebook Wednesday calling the company to abandon its plans to launch an Instagram app for kids. In light of the report, here's the quote, children and teens are uniquely vulnerable populations online, and these findings paint a clear and devastating picture of Instagram as an app that poses significant threats to young people's well-being, the lawmakers wrote. Facebook did not immediately respond to a request for the comment. 43, Cheryl. So there. Got it. 43. Got it. Got it. Noted. So there's that. Okay. Um, and there's a there's a tweet from uh, the head of Instagram, uh, Mosseri, who Mr. Mosseri says on Twitter, the Wall Street Journal story today on research we're doing to understand young people's experience on Instagram casts our findings in a negative light, but speaks to important issues. We stand by this work and believe more companies should be doing the same. And the next one is from ABC News that, oh, and this is, uh, this is a doozy. Uh, and I, somebody sent me a video of this as well, uh, which is one of the tweets that we will get into. After we, all, we, we only have a, uh, a bit more of these popular headlines to go through. Um, but this was one of the ones that somebody in the audience found as well. According to ABC News and others, Washington Post uh, and the U, uh, UN agency itself, The headline reads, it's not totally accurate, but we'll get into that. The UN rights chief calls for a moratorium on the sale and use of AI tech that threatens human rights, including facial recognition, until safeguards are put in place. Actually, that's a a much better worded headline. Um, Others are uh, uh, just saying UN urges moratorium on AI which is a little overstating the case. They're not trying to kill AI. They had an official statement that they read. And when you listen to their official statement, and mind you, this is not the UN. This is an agency within the UN, of which they have dozens, if, if not you know, uh, uh, more than 100. 
Um, so somebody can look that up. The UN has all kinds of agencies, many of which you've never heard of. And this one is UNHR, United Nations Human Rights. I honestly wasn't familiar with UNHR, and I'm quite familiar with a lot of UN agencies. But U, uh, United Nations Human Rights Chief on Wednesday called for the moratorium on the sale and use of AI technology that pose human rights risks, including this, this include, including the state use of facial recognition software until adequate safeguards are put in place. The plea comes as AI develops at a rapid clip despite myriad concerns ranging from privacy to racial bias plaguing the emerging technology. Here's the quote. Artificial intelligence can be a force for good, helping societies overcome some of the great challenges of our times, but AI technologies can have negative, even catastrophic effects if they are used without sufficient regard to how they affect people's human rights. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Michelle Bachelet said in a statement Wednesday. Bachelet's warnings accompany a report released by the UN Human Rights Office analyzing how AI systems affect people's right to privacy, as well as rights to health, education, freedom, movement, and more. Another second quote, artificial intelligence now reaches into almost every corner of our physical and mental lives and even emotional states. Uh, Bachelet adds, AI systems are used to determine who gets public services, decide who has a chance to be recruited for a job, and of course, they affect what information people see and can share online. And uh, given the rapid and continuous growth of AI, filing the immense accountability gap and how data is collected, stored, shared, and used is one of the most urgent human rights questions we face. We cannot afford to continue playing catch-up regarding AI, allowing its use with limited or no boundaries or oversight and dealing with the almost inevitable human rights consequences after the fact. Bachelet said, calling for immediate action to put human rights guardrails on the use of AI. Uh, this report echoes, uh, and then there's another quote uh, from someone named Greer. Oh, Evan Greer, the director of nonprofit advocacy group Fight for the Future, told ABC News that the report further proves the existential threat posed by this emerging technology. This report echoes the growing consensus among technology and human rights experts around the world. Artificial intelligence-powered surveillance systems like facial recognition pose an existential threat to the future of human liberty, Greer told ABC News. Like nuclear or biological weapons, technology like this has such an enormous potential for harm that it cannot be effectively regulated. It must be banned. Facial recognition and other discriminatory use of AI can do immense harm when they're deployed by governments or private entities like corporations. Greer added, we agree with the UN report's conclusion there should be an immediate worldwide moratorium on the sale of facial recognition, surveillance technology, and other harmful AI systems. Thoughts? Yeah, so I, I, I posted that. And, you know, I think it really ties into the conversation that we had yesterday and others, you know, in terms of how, you know, how we're able to manage and monitor, you know, AI and its application and, you know, to use it as a force for good and, and not to go down this dangerous pathway that would, you know, limit um, people's rights and their freedoms or, you know, um, even worse, kind of um, um, subjugate them. To, I'll, I'll be you know, back in three minutes. Go ahead. 
yeah, subjugate them to particular categories or profiling or, you know, so, I mean, I think it's interesting that she came out and said that, you know, she wants to place a moratorium on the use of AI. I don't know how that would be done or implemented, but I do think that it's important that the UN, you know, takes a strong stance um, at this stage, um, knowing that the technology is already out of the gate, but, you know, its applications and regulations, I think, are still in, you know, the process of being um, kind of kind of figured out. So, I mean, those are my initial thoughts. Yeah, Lakeisha, I, uh, I was actually involved in this process. Sorry, I'm out of space. It's a little echoey, so I hope it's clear. But I uh, was part of all the consultations that developed this report that Bachelet is speaking to. Um, and uh, it's part of an ongoing process at the UN Human Rights Office, which is the, the secretariat for all of the human rights treaties that different countries have ratified. Um, and so she can't actually impose a moratorium, but what she can do is call on UN member states, which is, you know, 190 countries, to take action to, uh, you know, ensure that they're regulating AI appropriately. So this is probably just one step in a longer process, which could develop into uh, having special experts appointed to look into this further, launching further investigations, but there's no inherent enforcement power. So it's really still up to governments to take action on this. Yeah, I don't know how you would enforce it, but I can think of a few really cool applications for facial recognition. Um, but I can also think of about a, a thousand times more Orwellian ones um, just from, you know, suppressing a, a society or advertising. It, it all goes off the rails like that is one of those truly transformative, uber powerful techniques. I mean, it's the same thing that, you know, really Elon Musk's is driving uh, all the cars around with. It's able to recognize the environment when you start recognizing people. It, it uh, yeah, it can get really weird. That's pretty much like a Pandora box. Just imagine the scenario like, <clears throat> you know, there's a crime committed um, and, uh, um, you know, pretty much like 25 people has been sort of like witnessed it, but some of the people don't want to actually come forward as a witness. And uh, here comes the face recognition. And, um, you know, you receive a letter, like you receive a letter that if you have actually been speeding or jumped the light um, at home, that you received a letter that you've been identified as the witness for that crime, can you come and testify? <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, what would be the legal implications of it? So. It's just a Pandora box by itself, like how the, you know, the legal, um, you know, from the justice point of view that whether it's going to be taken care of from that point onwards, uh, would it be considered um, as a, something that you can actually ask people to sort of like come as a witness and many other scenarios, by the way. Where is Charles? I mean, we're seeing in some countries. <laughs> Meg, I was going to ask you, what kind of feedback have you and your colleagues received? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if, if it's just not been long enough, you know, since, she, you know, the statement has been made public, but have you received any feedback, any, you know, strong um, from either camp, if you will, in terms of how it's being received, this, you know, this, this strong suggestion that AI needs to be better managed and policed? Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly not a novel suggestion. We've been talking about it earlier today in regards to Facebook and, and teenage girls, right? So 
The challenge I think is that there's not really a powerful mechanism in place for doing this globally. Maybe there shouldn't be, you know, maybe it really is better to leave it up to governments, but you have some governments that are very much using um, their, their technological capacity to maintain a hold on power for a tiny group. And, you know, of course, China is one example, but there's many others as well. Um, so the real question is what kind of public, you know, mobilization will there be to start to demand uh, a change in policy and change in, in governance of these mechanisms. The UN Human Rights Office doesn't have the capacity to do it. They have, I, they're one of the worst funded UN agencies, as Tyler pointed out, there are many, and they have one of the least, you know, budgets relative to their mandate. I think they have one guy actually who's responsible for human rights and AI. Uh, so it took them like three years to put out this report. You know, it's really interesting. So full disclosure, I'm meeting with a young woman. I, whenever I say young woman, I, you know, I'm reminded of my stage in my own life, but she's working with UN women um, and doing some really exciting work. And so I have my headset in and we're on Zoom. And, you know, I, you know, I heard this conversation come up because, you know, she's at a point in her career, like, you know, how can I, you know, advance the rights of women and of youth and of, you know, different marginalized populations. And, you know, one of the, one of the um, areas that we started to discuss just as this topic began was, you know, the intersection of technology and the implications that that will have either for the development of, you know, um, you know, towards certain types of goals within certain populations or the, um, you know, whether technology would be used as a force to to kind of impede that and to create more barriers. And, and I think that, you know, th to your point, I mean, it's not a new topic, but I think that there's still so much work that needs to be done at this inter at this intersection between human rights and technology. And it just feels like we're we're so we're so um not far behind, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done just to even scope it out. It, it's actually um, a shame because, sorry, sorry Meg, it's, a, it's actually a shame because the, the without the ethical use of technology norms by the technology companies themselves, um, the, the whole industry is forcing the hand of the government to step in and regulate as more and more of this stuff is getting out there, right? So we know that everything has, you know, there's two sides of every coin. I mean, every innovation has a dark side as well. Some of them get managed and we never see the you know, the light of the dark side, if that makes sense. Um, but it, when it comes to some of this stuff like facial recognition, Instagram, I mean, whatever, right? The addiction of gaming or just the algorithms and everything that's being done there's no, there's very little, I won't say the word no, there's very little self-regulation by the tech companies. Uh, and therefore, you're going to force the hand of government and regulators to step in. It's a shame, though. China's I doing totally it agree. in a very, hand, yeah. a very heavy-handed approach. But really, I mean, oh. you know, we'd have like something like 100 different sets of ethical principles that have been put out by like UN agencies, you know. Uh, professional associations, civil society. So, you know, the proliferation of like hundreds of these ethical guidelines doesn't really seem to change the underlying business models. And so I think, uh, unfortunately, it is going to come down to regulation. But One, also just... Uh, so, sorry, if I could... Sorry, jump Craig. In. Craig, go ahead. You go ahead, and then I'll come in. Thank you. Um, one part, I agree that government needs to step in, but one possible solution to complement that is AI itself. 
So there's a, um, a startup that raised uh, 25 million called Reliance AI. It was on TechCrunch today. And um, yeah, they, they've created a set of algorithms that are designed to uh, monitor companies' data streams and basically come back to their privacy groups and, and see if something is, uh, yeah, out of alignment or meeting the, uh, the, the, the local government uh, requirements. So on the AI front, I think just the definition of like what's ethical and what's not like at the time of the development is, is just simply not possible. I mean, just, just imagine that like once the drones were coming about, you know, you're selling a drone, you're developing a drone which has a camera, and then you you can fly it with X amount of, you know, with a range of X amount of kilometers or miles. Um, how would you implement that? That, you know, there's some sort of like a mechanism through which the people cannot actually use it for like, um, um, you know, sneaking into other people's property and then, you know, monitoring it. And, um, and that goes into all the privacy issues altogether. So, I mean, these kind of things, like when the technology evolves and similar thing happened like with the Facebook and all that, the, the, those privacy issues, um, you know, much later on sort of like we had to deal with. And then obviously all those hearings we heard um, but when the Facebook was actually developing those things, it, that doesn't come to mind that that could be something which is, um, you know, would have the legal implications. So when the technology is getting developed, it's not, it's it just simply not there. And, the, you know, the people who are actually developing it, they are not looking from the perspective that how it's going to be used. Um, um, in Facebook scenario, for instance, like when the people actually got on it and there, there was a sizable number, only then we were able to, you know, get, got in the position where, you know, that became a matter of something big which needed to be regulated. Um, similar thing happened with the drones. Like, I mean, government had to step in at a certain point in time that if it's going to have certain range with those drones, then, you know, we have to start issuing licenses for that. Um, so it's similar sort of scenario, especially with the AI is a lot more complex because you never know. I mean, there's if somebody's working on a machine, which is, becomes like, you know, in 10 years, five years time, which is going to be the basis for it, which evolves into something which becomes conscious. Here you go. This like a new breed of technology is going to be built on, on it. And at, at this point in time to actually decide on the development front that whether it would be ethical to go in that direction or not, it's just nearly impossible. No, so, so Kuram, I agree with you uh, on that perspective that it's still evolving. What I would say is, are the tech companies demonstrating intent and demonstrating good faith in having these conversations publicly and disclosing, hey, here's a potential dark side of it, guys. We want to put a disclaimer here. We want you to, they, they just don't, right? Even uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation protects uh, any kind of regulation or against companies, you know, they're upset against geofences, et cetera. But what about the end consumer? What about the other side? So I don't think big tech is talking about this openly enough. And, and if, at least if you're talking about it, showing good faith, then the, then the regulators will work with you. But they almost take an antagonistic approach. That, that's the way I feel. Okay, I'm back. What did I miss? We just did a unicorn uh, in this room. We just made a, did we make a buy now, pay later unicorn already? 
yes. Okay, good. Is it uh, is it an appropriate time to go into the next article, or is there another? Sure. Yeah. You can move on. Yeah. Okay, so the next one is from Coin. I just had to run real fast, so forgive me. Africa's crypto market grew by one thousand two hundred percent in value. And the next one from Politico, Joe Biden announces a new Indo-Pacific security partnership with Australia and the UK to to share tech in areas like AI, cybersecurity and quantum technologies. And China's uh, already has a negative comment about it. Uh, And they said it's specifically to combat China. Yeah, Garam. Yeah, we we had the whole room on it. Like we talked about, like for almost three hours on this particular thing, because the whole geopolitical situation is changing so fast. Uh, it, it's incredible, and in fact, like the NPT, um, you know, the Non-Proliferation Treaty actually came about. That uh, you know how it's going to be dealt with, because some of the actual elements in that pact is sort of like going into the, you know, that hot topics where, you know. It could be because it's going to be nuclear submarine is going to be involved in that. So it's not just simply technology on, yeah, on yeah, a conventional term, basis. But, uh, yeah. President Biden made it very clear that they're not uh, giving nuclear technology. It's a nuclear submarine using non-nuclear uh, warheads and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I watched that live interview with, uh, well, not interview, speech from the three two prime ministers and the president and it was clear that it was not going to be that but still it it raises the question of two worlds being created now i mean they're referring to the power plants right that they're nuclear power plant subs not diesel um subs i believe exactly yeah okay and And then tyler i've been using it down there for a long time okay thank you okay ken where are you at Okay, next up, we ready for the next one? Sure. Sure, here we go. Next one from Bloomberg. FTC says that Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft made 819 unreported acquisition deals of more than $1 million, including for patents and acquihires from 2010 to 2019, so for the decade of 2010 to 2020, basically, they did 819 unreported acquisition deals of at least $1 million. That's quite a lot. Uh, Actually, that's about what I would have guessed. Uh, We should have done that as a tech news jeopardy, actually, including for patents and acquires reports show hundreds of deals by tech giants were unchecked. Antitrust enforcers must close loopholes, FTC chair uh, Lena Khan says. Next up. From Reuters, WhatsApp launches its first test of a public directory for businesses within the app, starting in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Facebook's messaging service, WhatsApp, on Wednesday launched a new feature to make it possible to search for businesses within its app for the first time, the company told Reuters. And this is right in my wheelhouse. My startup was exactly related to precisely this. So um, it's... It's interesting. The question is, will people message businesses via WhatsApp uh, in Thailand? We're definitely doing that now. Um, I believe it will work very well. Um, and yeah, the question is, they're going to need to make the 
back end, meaning the part that the business sees, uh, a little dashboard so that, you know, they've got, if you ping the, the gym, you know, on the in Manhattan, who should that go to? <laughs> and maybe it should go to 10 different people and maybe they want a dashboard and analytics and companies. If WhatsApp is going to want companies to use this, they're going to have to get all of these endless requests of features from companies. Um, you know, I want to, I want to be able to unread the message and forward it to the boss and send it to his phone and do this. And I mean, there's literally hundreds of features uh, that they will ask for, especially in terms of, by the way, Tyler, yeah. Yeah, I see more and more integration, like, um, you know, the direction of the WhatsApp is going to be more kind of like linking it and the business side I'm talking about, not the personal side, but the business WhatsApp is going to be more linked towards the actual pages of the Facebook. And now with the feature that now it's not just about actually you opening up a copy of the WhatsApp on your computer, but it's there are five copies you can actually open and you don't need the phone to be there. And that is now, you know, all the messages are in the cloud. And now you have the separate copy on each machine if you want to actually open it five times. So that feature is being introduced like about, I think, a month and a half ago. So now what you are referring to is going to be ultimately possible that, you know, people of five team can actually sort of like see the same thing at the same time. And they don't need a phone to be in, um, you know, with a QR code and all that. So, and they can increase it. I mean, it doesn't have to be the five copies. It could be like 20 copies. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -mm, yeah. Next one up is from, here we go. Axio says, Rebellion Defense. The Eric Schmidt, and Eric Schmidt used to be the CEO of Google. And I believe he's, is he still chairman of Google? He, he was kind of when he stepped down um, and gave the seat, the CEO seat back to the founders. But Eric Schmidt backed yeah, hold on one second. Hold on, hold on. This is some expensive dead air. <laughs> In case you just joined the room, please hold on for yes. a while. Tyler Rebellion back. Defense, the Eric Schmidt-backed developer of AI defense tech, raises $150 million led by Insight and Venrock at a $1 billion pre-money valuation. Rebellion Defense, a developer of AI solutions for U.S. defense, tells Axios that it has raised $150 million in venture capital at a $1 billion pre-money valuation. And so the question is, to the UN human rights, uh, does Eric Schmidt's AI defense uh, of our borders, is that violating human rights? Or is that infringing on the enjoyment of human rights, as they phrased it in their press event earlier today? Um, that This is where it's going to, that whole issue, and I wasn't uh, part of that debate or conversation, but my goodness, um, how, how do you police the that how do you police ai like that it, people who do ai will tell you it's not possible so i understand governments think that it's possible it, i'm trying to think of an equivalent of the geeks to ask the governments it's like hey governments uh, we are going to demand that you do all court cases in less than one hour going forward that all uh, supreme court cases should be less than 24 hours that has that a fair 
how's that sound? I, okay, we, we'll meet you halfway. We'll we'll uh, we'll you know start. <laughs> we'll do. I mean, that's the impossibility of the ask of like uh, you know trying to police and regulate AI based on ethics, which is what they're arguing. And it's just it's too. There's a lot of people at AI departments having head shaking laughter mania today uh, over that headline. This, this, this is what I That's what we were discussing, Tyler, when you were away. This is exactly what we were discussing. So what I find quirky about that is I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to how, how sorry to interrupt you, Carl. Uh, I'll, I'll hand it to okay. you next. But I just want how do we let the politicians know how kind of um um beyond the moon how, how beyond the moon it is i think we have to put it in their terms they understand which is okay great you're a politician okay great let's balance the budget <laughs> by by tomorrow yeah we'll we'll fix ai and you balance the budget tomorrow you re, you know simple as that easy peasy great let's do it mission accomplished oh and while you're at it get all the co2 out of the atmosphere done great that's that's kind of this point I was going to make that Chris just made is that this this assumption, which is how do, how do we explain one how incapable it would be to shut down an AI sort of running a platform temporarily or even to control it or to hold progress because of just the speed that it grows, but also how would you like the conversation you're saying talk to them at the points that talk to them in the way that they would understand? Well, it's this assumption that we're talking about it from a point of ethics and maybe i'm cynical but i don't think a lot of world governments are particularly interested in ethics they're interested in efficacy so then what you say is well the problem isn't that um an ai that google is employing or facebook's employing or any of these identity services are employing are unethical it's that they're so efficient that it's taking the power out of the government hands and the government's kind of looking at it and go well i kind of want a piece of that like nuclear weapons are the most unethical thing that we've ever developed ever and it's a terrible idea for us to have them but they're so goddamn efficient that every major world power has you know at least a couple lying around in a warehouse somewhere so it's, it's like by the way it's this is what i'm confused about this this un thing which is uh, initially i thought oh that's clever because if you tie it to human rights human rights is quite a um it is something that world governments care about from either internally, but also from a point of perspective from their, their citizens want to know you're not infringing on my human rights. But then Meg actually uh, educated us um, about the, the fact that it's just so underfunded and inadequate. So what is this? Is this just like a distraction? Hey, we care about human rights. Well, actually, what we want is we want a piece of this pie. We don't want to stop um, AI. We just want some of our own. We want control of it. So. One other point here is that arm of the UN, UN Human Rights, their ballpark is obviously human rights, the hints in the name. But there is a considerable human right uh, issue happening on planet Earth at the moment that a lot of countries, big, big, big countries have used the name genocide on officially, government official statements of genocide. And um, the UN Human Rights Group isn't really doing anything about that. There's an, you know, many countries are claiming there's an actual genocide happening on planet Earth at this moment. And the UN Human Rights Agency is turning their head away on that. That that would seem to be perhaps uh, deserving of their attention and focus. And I imagine that uh, the 
yeah, well, they, you know, the AI that's being used, I think they understand that AI is being used as part of that and they want to limit that. I can understand that and I can appreciate that and empathize with their perspective on that. But, but um, I forget where I was going to go with, with this rant. Well, I, no, I, I saw Meg wanted to jump in. Hold on, Karam. Meg? Yeah, Meg? sorry. <laughs> in defense of my colleagues down the street here at the High Commissioner for Human okay. Rights. This is a this is a tiny little agency. That, yes. As I was saying, I think while you're away, Tyler, they're they're completely underfunded. What they do actually is they don't they can't enforce any human right. rights because they don't stop their job. What they do is they're a secretariat for all of the human rights treaties that countries have signed, and then countries hold each other accountable. Got it. And I think you know I absolutely share your concern about the genocide, and they've they have issued some statements. I agree they could go farther, um, but the problem is really that no country wants to stand up and and yeah. really you know take action. Right. So I think that's the problem. Yep. Thank you for that, Meg. But that, maybe another discussion. No, no, no. That's a, your, your inputs are brilliant. So I appreciate it. Um, yeah. And then, Karam, sorry, I inter I, one second, I interrupted Karam. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. But to be fair, I think it should be welcome. At least the conversation has started to happen. I, you know, in 20 years time, 20, 30 years time, we, we're going to be, uh, you know, we, we're going to be have this issue at hand. So there has to be some sort of conversation to start to happen and would evolve into something which is going to be more practical. So that's just my opinion. I think. Yeah. Tyler, may I add something? Willie, yeah. we... we ben, ben, you've got a hot mic. Okay, I'll get, I'll get Ben. And then Willie, we have to put the 24-second shot clock on you, my friend. Go ahead. Yeah. Ben. It's, 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 it's Willie. Oh, no, uh, it was. Uh, now it's. Okay, me. go ahead. To, oh, that must have been a bug, yeah, Tyler. No Sorry, problem. No, that wasn't me doing anything. Go ahead, Willie. Now it's. Uh, I, I want to say the policing is impossible on many levels, not only on one level. Think about the speed of development in AI generally. Then think about of the speed of development in a project. Then think about the butterfly effect. If you just change a line of code, it might become uh, very toxic what uh, this AI can proceed in a certain context. And without that line of code, it would be uh, rather harmless. And the same uh, the complexity of uh, explaining it and the billions which are at stake typically. So it's really uh, impossible on many levels, but I totally understand the wish to do it because in the same in the same time it's like um, let's say uh, the non proliferation treaty on nuclear um, on nuclear stuff uh, but it's much more complicated and uh, indeed we need a debate about it like we had on killer drones so that's was okay. my two cents. So Bloomberg has a hot new headline here that says Brooklyn-based Genius, a music annotating startup that provides context for rap lyrics, has sold its assets for $80 million, less than the total funding it raised. And that was an interesting startup journey, that one. My goodness. And an interesting founder. Um, the buyer is Medialab.ai Inc. Uh, they were from my, my little hometown of Santa Monica, California. Oh, no, they sold it to its assets to Santa Monica, California-based media holding company for $80 million and which is Media Lab. And Genius originally started out doing the, the lyrics. And it, it turns out the, the whole lyric space is a really wild uh, copyright space online. So um, it became a very strange business for all those lyric companies.
It says the sale rep. Perfect one for you, Tyler, with your uh, music background and geek. You know what's funny? I must be like loving this. Well, one. yeah, I'll tell you a funny story that uh, has never really been told. So, uh, doing a a startup out of uh, Santa Monica back uh, in two thousand seven, eight, nine, ten, um, Google themselves uh, came. We had a meeting, and we were talking about what to do and da, 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 da. and Google even suggested why not get into the lyrics because lyrics are huge. We have an incredible amount of search for lyrics at Google. Why don't you become the database of all the lyrics? And boy, was that a, a trap. Um, that would have been a really terrible move, it turns out, legally. And, for, and there's companies who did go into that. And for a short time, it was incredibly lucrative. And, and Genius was quite hot. At the moment, and I believe Mark Andreessen himself invested in Genius, and uh, it was assumed to be it was going to be a hot thing and all that, and it just it got wrapped up in the in the music industry's uh, python of you so, know, so, so music, constrictor. So, so literally, so literally, the pythons wouldn't let them use do fair use of, of the they lyrics. they just. I, it, this article yeah, genius doesn't create anything do they right well like, um, that, i've been looking at this for three years now well this was the issue is google like takes this approach all the time google's approach and they debate this constantly with websites which is data isn't copyrightable so if your website has data we're going to take that data out and we're going to provide it to you they, google has this interesting paradox which is when somebody's searching on google and we know the answer. Can we not just show it to them as fast as we want? Because that's what we want. We want them to have a great user experience. Why send them a page of five blue links and make them search in those blue links for the answer when we can? We know the answer. Algorithmically, your, here's your question. Oh, that answer uh, is a piece of data on this website. Take out what they call a snippet. Provide that snippet. And so, for example, how old is Britney Spears? It will now tell you how old Britney Spears is. But that they got that information from a website. Should they have sent you to that website that had that data? Because somebody had to go through the trouble of asking her and getting that information and hosting it on their, their website. And Google just took that answer and put it uh, above their blue links. So now you don't have to go to their website. But it's data. Nobody can own the fact that Britney's, you know, 26 years old or whatever. How tall is Tom Cruise? How much does, you know, Shaquille O'Neal make? There's countless, countless, countless data. Now, what about song lyrics? Who owns that? Do You know, it gets even much, much more tricky. But you see the paradox uh, between publishers and Google in this battle that they have of and why Rupert Murdoch and, and Fox Media hate uh, the Googles and the Facebooks because they get the viewage, they run the ads, the, and they don't send the people to the... Um, to the source of the news, who did the actual journalism. Unfortunately, the people that lose at the end of the day in these kind of battles are the artists and the actual creators and the people oh, yeah. because they get so caught up in the red tape that what's happening is that a lot of their music or their lyrics and you know what that could have been heard or seen around the world no longer does. And then they have to, <clears throat> excuse me, then they have to depend on you know the big companies again to to get their their music out there. So it's it's a, it's a very difficult thing, and often it's the artists that are actually really suffering in the end. So that's just an interesting topic on that one. The next one is 
Uh, 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 Tyler, yes. can I ask yes. you something? Uh, can you guys come up with some kind of uh, in, inscription form of news so that uh, Google won't be able to do something like that and only on your, when you're on that website that you get to see the real data? Is that possible? Using AI is usually is what people do as well. Yeah, I mean you can you can do stuff on a website to to it's like called a robot.txt where you don't allow sites to crawl it, but then you don't get the traffic, right? And uh, even then, that's like a polite request not to. It's the same as the new Agreed, controls yeah. that you've got on Apple where you say don't track me across apps. It's, it's a polite request not to. You don't have to listen to it. Okay. Next one is uh, a company from Reuters. It says Melio, a B2B payment startup for small businesses, raises $250 million. And French startup Skello, which develops SaaS software as a service tool that lets companies manage their work schedules, raises $40 million euros from Partech, which is uh, Boris and the team over there in Paris. And then Bloomberg says that Oppo, which is one of the biggest uh, mobile phone companies, especially in Asia, and it's a, considered kind of a budget smartphone. They make very cheap, but big smartphones, is cutting around 20% of its staff in key software and device teams after it merged operations with OnePlus, which they merged with about a month ago. I remember reading that headline. DoorDash files another lawsuit against New York City, saying the new laws requiring it to share customer data with restaurants constitutes an invasion of their privacy. Oh, boy, that's interesting. That, that's a great one. Isn't it, it is. Like, uh, the, ju- the juicy data yeah. is being harnessed yep. and uh, taken over. That's super interesting. DoorDash files uh, because DoorDash wants to own the customer. The customer orders from DoorDash. And DoorDash keeps all of that information about the customer. DoorDash picks up the food, gives it to the customer, end of story. And the restaurants are like, we want to know who that customer is so that next time they can order from us. And DoorDash is like, uh, yeah, no, that ain't how this works. That's our customer. And it's our platform. Uh, you agreed to join our platform. Nobody forced you onto our platform. If you don't like our platform, go find another platform. That's the rules. It's our customer. Isn't that a bit aggressive? Though? Sure. Yeah. But isn't isn't being told you have to join the military and go die for your country a little aggressive? Yeah, it's a little aggressive. So uh, it's not just, it's not just ownership. It would also be like a, a bit of a nightmare for DoorDash because the like then they are passing on when you sign up, you say, hey, DoorDash, you're keeping all of my data. And with one click, with one button, I can clear any data that you store about me. They can't do that if they're passing it on to third parties every time you order. Yeah, but DoorDash, it would not it would be even worse. It would be DoorDash would cease to exist. It's like um, I'm trying to think of another example of a if you're if you're letting the consumers and the restaurants uh, go directly, they will. And then there's no need for DoorDash. I suppose if, you, if you're a restaurant that has the, like not every restaurant that uses DoorDash, and I would probably say most, don't have their own capable app with a nice UI that's very quick to order. They don't have integrated Apple Pay. They probably might not even necessarily have delivery services. But yeah. yeah, yeah the, the, the key of the debate is who... When when you want food, are you a, at that moment and you open your phone and when you decide I want food and you obviously have choices to walk outside, believe it or not, people used to do this. 
They used to open the front door of their goddamn. No way. They used to. No they, way. I, they said it they, themselves. I swear to God, they used to put on their shoes and open the front door and walk out of their uh, apartment and go in search of food. And this has been going on almost back to like the you know back into the uh, Paleolithic era, where people would go look for animals. Sounds like, like a hunter. Yeah, like a hunter gatherer kind of thing. And turns out, it's only in the past I don't know eighteen months of human history that this has kind of changed where now people put their hand in their pocket and they pull out a phone. And I, and I make this long winded joke to say at that moment, that's the key moment. Cause once you put your hand in your pocket, you're not really a customer of the restaurant. You're a customer of the app. If you put your shoes on, you're obviously a customer of the restaurant, but by putting your hand in your pocket and you have many apps to open and you could open Google and search for the name of that restaurant for their phone number and call them directly. It's crazy. They, there's this thing called a telephone and the restaurant will actually answer it and they'll say, Gino's pizza. And you say, hey, Gino's, can I order a pizza? But you didn't do that. You press this red little app called DoorDash. And at that moment, when you click the DoorDash button, whose customer are you? Are you Gino's pizza's customer or are you DoorDash's customer? That's the heart of the debate. Jokes aside, does anybody know if DoorDash has anything in their policies that prohibits you from making active attempts to claim the customer back? As in, like, if you were if you're a pizza place, can you add a QR code on your pizza box so when they scan it, it then downloads the app along with a 20-30% sort of um, discount right. for, your, for your next order? Now, your next what doing? I have no like, time to check, Carl, but I would assume, of course, because like otherwise there's no, there's no business case for DoorDash to exist. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's like um, a third party that create, like is helping businesses keep their data, but I forgot what the name of that third party is. But the reality is this is like, like if <laughs> I just see um, DoorDash ending bad with this kind of um, practice, to be honest, like there's a, a lot of good faith that's happening with a lot of people. And yeah, there's no real business case for this. So, yeah, it has this to let like, McDonald's actually get your information, by the way, uh, through uh, certain third parties. So I work I used to work on food, so I'm aware that third parties like mcdonald's or starbucks that want your information so it does happen but we give the customer the opportunity to say either they um opt in or they opt out so it does happen it, it happens in china as well i think this is going to accelerate the um the promulgation of the ghost kitchens because what will happen is the customer is going to show up and gino's pizza just won't be there there'll be um you know the the ghost kitchen version of a pizza place so um, I, I think the problem is the restaurateurs are kind of stuck here. They they need the business. Well, it's, it's always the way that it's going to happen because you start off by facilitating and then you become the gatekeeper. And the moment you become the gatekeeper, um, you know, the people you were facilitating don't really like yeah, that. And they're exactly. Yeah. Like, and it's a very old way of doing business, like as in old people way of doing business as well. Like, they, yeah, new people don't really like that, to be fair. If, well, it, um, it's... It's, it's yeah. very close to how we have the issue in the UK of supermarkets with providers, with produce providers, as in it used to be the case that you would go directly to a farmer's market or to a farmer, for instance, and you you would, you know, you'd buy your produce like that. Yeah. And then Tesco's are like, hey, we can keep your stuff. We can deliver it. We can we can put it in a, on a nice shelf and we will facilitate it. And then it's got to the point where Tesco's will go over here 
um, who's, who's the major sort of um, major supermarket in the UK. I'll just say, you know, we, our quarterly is down. We need to boost profits. So we're going to cut 20 percent of the revenue that was going through to the farmers. And we'll, or we're going to make it cheaper. But that isn't going to we're going to drop the price of milk by 20 pence a bottle. That's not going to come out of our pockets. That's going to come out of your pockets. Hey, don't look at us. You know, it's, it's, it's your job to to figure out how to how to solve that. And this is very similar to that, where it's facilitating and then leads to gatekeeping. I don't know why there is so much issue. If you look at any other model, like Hold on, Karam. I have to jump out for five minutes. Sure. Go ahead. So, Karam, go ahead. Uh, just, okay, so for booking.com, like, I mean, pretty much the same. I mean, if you look at it in any other scenario, you're booking a rent a car, you're booking a hotel room, you're going through booking.com or you're going through Orbiz or Expedia and all that. Um, Expedia is getting all your information and it's been passed on to you know, rent a car and uh, two hotels and all that. So I, why this issue is coming up in terms of the actual food? Um, I, that's pretty I, I much... just think because food doesn't have the KYC element. You know, you're renting a hotel room, you're renting a car. There's no KYC in food necessarily no. until you get into alcoholic beverages. So sorry, Chris. The other reason, and Karam, is because all of these companies, uh, they were deeply discounting from what the rate they were paying to the restaurant to the consumer in order to acquire the customer. Now, that deep discounts have dropped, and the price differential that I can get from the restaurant to these uh, food delivery companies isn't that much, isn't that significant anymore. Uh, and they're, because they, they had a burn rate, right? Now they're trying to make money. They're trying to do that. So with that, uh, with the discounting stuff that's happening uh, or not happening anymore, what's in it for the restaurants anymore? I mean, they're not bringing any more. They can create their own delivery system, et cetera, and probably offer discounts directly to the consumer. Why do they need to give that to uh, uh, the food delivery apps? Yeah, well, okay, so to your point, actually... Vinay, uh, I just want to add that. Um, Vinay, yeah, good point. It's just the the thing is it does impact the small merchants, right? And that's the shitty part about, um, you know, food apps in general. It's it's more of the, the small mom and pop shops like in, get impacted more. But like, let's say if it's a large brand like Starbucks and McDonald's, like I'm aware of this because I, I worked on something like it in China. You can sign up uh, on Starbucks through through WeChat, but you're still having access to your Starbucks reward points right and this is something that uh you know we we they want to encourage our customers still to retain them right most importantly but also use those points um and and get rewards if you're still purchasing through starbucks using your membership so they let you do that in china i know that's a completely different uh you know way of retaining customers but it's a smart way of actually retaining customers but only large merchants right can only do that if you have that type of uh you know, a system in place. So that's the shitty part about um, retaining customers with merchants. So we have gone through, uh, I have an IT company, so we actually not don't do it normally for like smaller businesses. We do for like, you know, ERP solutions for bigger businesses, but that was a friend. So he approached out, he has got the restaurant um, in Buffalo. And um, so uh, we started to actually sort of looking into the whole equation because that was the, um, issue he had because they were paying about roughly anywhere between 25 to 35 percent um, depending on the actual number of orders and everything so it's not just the DoorDash and Uber Eats and all that so five um, tablets are sitting next to his uh, uh, you know the cash cash register which is uh, Clover so Clover actually provides all the payment solution and it's got the cash register and 
that is getting connected with the with all these services. So, um, so he said, like, how can I actually save money? So we said, okay, fine, um, let us develop something for it because pretty much the Clover actually provides the uh, you know the back end where the whole ordering system is being taken care of. The only difference is that uh, you know you have to be on the screen to actually touch that. Okay, item A, B, C, D, whatever, and then you just um, you know build up something behind it, which is going to be online. So uh, it already provides that online ordering system. Now, what comes in that obviously you still have to do the deliveries by yourself. So you actually hire a person um, who's going to be actually providing him the car or the bikes or whatnot. So you're effectively working on your own delivery setup. Um, so after six months or so, he realized that it's not, it's simply not worth it to actually just keep paying all those delivery guys who are actually sitting there. Doesn't matter whether the order comes in or not. That's one thing. Secondly, that the orders are coming in through the marketing by DoorDash and Uber Eats. Um, those orders won't be coming in. And then you have to actually spend more on your social media marketing and other marketing tactics uh, to actually bring more customers to get more orders. So is this is the typical scenario for uh, for a small business or like maybe three, four restaurants who have got the chain of three, four restaurants. You know, obviously McDonald's, KFC and all that is going to be different, but Chick-fil-A and all that. But for the small businesses, um, it's, a, it's a predicament that either they should save like 25% on the actual delivery part, but in return, they are not just getting a delivery. They are also getting, a, you know, the orders. So that's the that's the inside information I can share here. That's what we have done. We have gone through. Okay, it. so here we go. Next up is Deep Vision, which develops AI accelerator chips and software for edge computing workloads, raises thirty five million. Uh, from Tiger Global, Strong DM, which builds tools uh, to manage servers and databases, raises $54 million from Tiger Global. Persona, an identity verification startup used by DoorDash and Robinhood and Square, raises $150 million, led by Founders Fund uh, at a $1.5 billion valuation. So here's we got a ver identity verification unicorn already, of which there will be more to come. That's going to be a very interesting space, as you know, if you follow us here daily. And Reliance AI, which builds tools to help companies comply with privacy laws, raises $25 million. So AI, this whole AI thing, it's, I'm still kind of... And here's the next one. I'm, these are in a pre-set list. I'm <laughs> Constructor, which helps companies optimize e-commerce listings using AI, raises 55, $55 million. Pretty much every company these days is a whole big percentage of them are using AIs that they themselves don't fully understand. And well, even the the key person in the company responsible for it, which is usually just a couple people, even they don't truly understand it, let alone the, the CEO for sure doesn't understand it. Nobody in the executive team understands it. So just again, kind of touching back on that earlier point. It, it's worth remembering as when we say powered by AI as well, there's different levels of that. And sometimes it might be an in-house actual modeling system. And a lot of times it's just going to be that the company uses a third-party search engine that happens to have some sort of AI component so they can slap the words, you know, the letters AI on their product. So it's, it's not always necessarily a world-altering Skynet that each of these uh, companies are developing. And um, hold on one second here. Where was the video that I saw? Uh, no. Okay. So the next one is, where is it here? 
Xiaomi launches their uh, iPhone competitor the day after the iPhone, the 11T and the 11T Pro for 649 euros. Charges The phone charges 100% in 17 minutes. And that's pretty much your big boring headlines that uh, everyone... Did you did you have a better? Yeah, yeah, no, about that really sweet sushi. No, um, then <laughs> so that's the the boring headlines at the moment. So now we get into the tweets, and Elon Musk and Tesla devotee Kathy Wood says that uh, uh, Bitcoin is going to five hundred thousand dollars in the next five years, and. Uh, Franklin Templeton files for a $20 million blockchain venture fund. And what else do we got here? Uh, Anti-Bitcoin protests escalate in El Salvador Independence Day. Thousands took to the streets in El Salvador, and many were protesting against the country's new Bitcoin law. Uh Uh-oh. And Clubhouse has hired an NPR veteran as head of news, Nina Gregory, uh, senior editor for NPR's Arts Desk, uh, who has worked for the nonprofit media organization since 2006, is joining Clubhouse as its head of news. And the next one's from Poppy about climate change. Water risks highest in Asia, says Moody's report. And this is my kind of headline here. So it says the Moody's report said risks are more pronounced for water intensive sectors like mining, agriculture and power. Water management risks tied up to the existing supply of quality issues, as well as risks amplified by climate change, pose credit challenges across multiple sectors in Asia, particularly in parts of South and Southeast Asia, where water scarcity or mismanagement is already prevalent, said a report released on Wednesday. According to the report by Moody's Investors Science, blah, 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 blah. So next one, Google sets new water goals as droughts worsen. And retweeting all of these as we always do. And what are they talking about here? With drought sucking the Western U.S. dry, Google announced new plans to protect vital water resources. Google guzzles up water to coolest data centers. And Google laid out three strategies to accomplish the the goal of to replenish 120% of the water it consumes which is nice. Hopefully they all do that. So the next one, drought puts 2.1 million Kenyans at risk of starvation from the Guardian. That's a lot of people, more than 2 million people uh, at risk of starvation due to drought. National disaster declared as crops fail after poor rains and locusts, while ethnic conflicts add to the crisis. The estimated 2.1 million Kenyans face starvation due to a drought in half the country, which is affecting harvest. The National Drought Management Authority said people living in 23 counties across the arid north, northeastern and coastal parts of the country will be in urgent need of food aid over the next six months after poor rains between March and May this year. The crisis has been compounded by COVID-19. The affected regions are usually the most food insecure in Kenya due to high levels of poverty. Uh, as As heartbreaking as this headline is this is this is going to be like buy now pay later or indian unicorns unfortunately the droughts are going to lead to uh a lot of famine and and a lot of starvation in in the near future very unfortunately but this is this is where all the 
data points are pointing to. So this headline, sadly, is not a surprise. And if you look at the the projected, um, you know, water dis, you know, uh, distribution in the months and years to come, this is going to get exacerbated rather remarkably to, uh, and you're going to have a million, I've said before, millions and millions and millions of people across North Africa, all the way through the Middle East, all the way to Western China are going to have to relocate. We're talking tens of millions of people. So this 2 million of Kenyans who are at risk of starvation, well, obviously they likely have to relocate or you could bring in food there. That isn't going to fix the problem, unfortunately, because you can't continue to bring food to a place that... What about the wild animals? Yeah, please do, Mabana. (laughs) Sorry, I don't speak much. I just listen. But um, I'm in in northern Tanzania, which is not too far from Kenya. I can drive there. And uh, pre-pandemic, I used to go almost every month for our drive. And I, and I can see the change uh, from Tanzania to Kenya. For Tanzania, um, it's, it's not as, as semi-arid as Kenya is, at least as you, as you come in. So, um, so I'm quite lucky. But uh, I've moved into a new house, which I've been building. And the river next to me is, um, you know, is, flows all year round. But this year, I think it's only got about a f- less than a meter Flowing this, and this is the height of dry season. That's, that's why this headline is quite important because dry season is kind of ending now. That's kind of where you know also the migration happens um, as the wildebeest start to move from uh, between Masai Mara and Serengeti. Um, but yeah, so the short rains, which typically come in October um, and, and September, October, if, if more recently they've been kind of very unreliable and even sometimes failing. Um, and so this this year, if the short rains don't um, um, come on time. Th- this could get a lot, lot worse. Yeah. So this one, to kind of chime in on that on that side. Um, it, it is worrying. Uh, and also another thing, kind of on the economic side of things, Tanzania for the first time um, had had a trade surplus with Kenya. Like this has never happened. Like in I think thirty or forty years, because Kenya is more commercial and typically exports to us, um, and we import from them. But but this year we've been exporting. Guess what? Food to mm. them. Right. And so we, we, we had a boom in food exports to Kenya because they need it from us. Uh, but I don't know how that's going to how long that lasts. As that desert aridness expands down towards us, we may both be screwed. Mm. I just wanted to add that. Thanks. May I just make a, yeah. a gentle kind of observation? You know, I, I heard someone ask about the animals and, you know, sometimes I, I personally struggle with that. I, I think back to Hurricane Katrina in the U.S. and, you know, just maybe some conversations that I had with some people who had power to potentially do things, but, you know, rather than place their focus on the people who were fleeing, they placed them, you know, on the pets that were left behind. And, and so maybe this is my own personal trigger, but, you know, I, I think that the animals will naturally know how to migrate to other locations, but I, you know, I, I would hope that our emphasis in terms of uh, mitigation would be focused on the human populations. Okay. Uh, Amazon's creating a point-of-sale system to compete with Shopify and PayPal. And then we also, really interesting kind of revelation yesterday in the room here, that uh, it's well known that they will use their Amazon One system, which is a palm reader for authentication, which they do use in their Amazon Go stores now and into Whole Foods where they're rolling it out. But this 
a POS system, that's how you pay for things, right? And I didn't really put two and two together. So if Amazon's your payment point of sale, that's what POS is, it's your cash register, essentially, although now it's an iPad and then however you pay. Well, Amazon has their own payment authentication method, which is called Amazon One, which is your palm on a piece of glass. So I think it's a fairly safe assumption, wouldn't we agree, that this POS system is a way for them to roll out their Amazon One um, is going to be bundled with this point of sale system? Yes, that's common sense. Is it not, class? Yes, it is. Right. So if they're going to, they just found a very clever way to get their palm reading thing all over the place in all kinds of stores. And never mind the fact that they get all of the shopping data and consumer data of everything that you're selling in that city and at what times of day and what times of year and and the customer and what they're buying. And now they're going to start sending them ads to go directly to Amazon and, you know, goodbye, your little company. So on top of that, this palm reading authenticator where you just pay with your palm, you say, here's my cart. Great. Touch the glass. Boom. You're done. Lovely, lovely experience. We heard from Eric IO, who joins us regularly in our last meeting, that he believes, well, he's even his team apparently and others are working on the engineering of being able to get genetic data from uh, the, your, uh, there's certain fingerprint readers that are able to extract some sort of genetic data. Chris, can you help fill in the blanks there? Basically, what um, Eric said is that they're using some kind of microwave um, to be able to get certain genetic uh, parts of your certain parts of your genetic code to like vibrate or um, shake and being able to detect that. And what Eli threw out there is basically, yes, that's true, but there's so much crap that you have to get through um, that, you know, he thinks the technology is far away. I personally, um, I think that the technology is closer to what Eric says than what Eli says. And I'm not trying to stir things up. It's just um, you're going to hear the word microwave resonance um, very often in the future. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just a phenomena that happens, um, but it's just going to be very common um, use because so many things are going to use microwave resonance in the future. I vote for... Um... I vote for every time we use this, uh, our palms, that we actually also get a reading on how many lifetimes we're going to have and how long we're going to live. And in the future. <laughs> like real. Yeah, I was thinking the tarot I'm, reading. I'm okay right? with that as long as you give me some tidbit on my future. <laughs> Free. My love life. Like, tell me what my love line is going to do. So I was in that room earlier today where I yeah. kind of talked about this, and the, the, it was a mathematical model for vibration behavior analysis of DNA using a resonant frequency of DNA for genome engineering by Marvi and Gondry. If anybody wants, I can text that to him. But the thing that was weird that I scanned it, and again, it's above my pay grade, but it not can only read. In the paper, it says it can also write. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> so there you go. Hold on. I have a special sound file for for that kind of thing. <laughs> Well, I'll take everybody. twenty. I'll take twenty percent off of my purchase if Amazon wants to put an ad in my DNA. I don't mind. <laughs> I've, I have the unique everybody urge to go b- spend all my money on Amazon Prime now. Um, 
DNA is just four four characters, so it is very easy to rewrite it. So I'm sure I'm sure the vaccine hesitancy folks will have a heyday with that one. Um, yeah, jokes aside, though, quickly. Well, by the way, there's, it's already just a Sorry, little. Hold, well, oh, Carl, 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 hold on. That... It's, it's already just a little too close. I mean, if you think the vaccines are scaring, you know, the vaccine hesitancy community, this palm thing is Dave on stage. Irish Dave, because the palm thing is, you know, uh, evangelical Christians of which I grew up in, in such a, I went to a private Christian school. We read the book of revelations very regularly. And it says in the book of revelations, you won't be able to buy or sell anything without, uh, the mark of the beast on your right hand. Yep. So all, you're going yep. to have and a millions and millions and millions of people already very susceptible from the word go about a palm scanning way to pay for anything. So, let alone the idea that it does anything with your DNA. You, you're going to have, uh, you know, riots in the streets over this. Uh, it's wild. It's going to be very wild. Like I said, you're, and there, there's a lot of people who think that, you know, that the mRNA vaccines are somehow related to this. But this this is just even far more too close to for comfort for most people based on their interpretations of uh, Apostle John's book, uh, book of Revelation. Or balls, rather. I'm, I'm re re trying to recall if it was Paul or John who wrote it. Anyway, so the next one. Um, most Australians see a shopping, see shopping as in-store, not online. Shopify says, OK, well, that, that will change quickly. And Adobe jumps into e-commerce payments business. We covered that. And VR fun in bed. Somebody found a, a VR system that works while you lay down. You strap it to your feet. It's quite interesting, but you have to see it in the, in the tweet I just wanted. And everybody's talking about the, the UN uh, urges moratorium on AI use. I mean, my goodness, time.com. And then everyone's tweeting that one in. Bitcoin above 47,000 level. And there's a whole, very getting very volatile in, in Bitcoin land uh, because of Bloomberg's headline says, billionaire Cohen to invest in new crypto trading firm. Uh, all kinds of interesting movements happening in that space. And one in 500 Americans have died of COVID. These States and groups have been hardest hit, according to the Washington Post. And what else? The government helped Tesla conquer electric cars. Now it's helping its competitors. And it's because Obama actually gave a big kind of loan to Tesla when it was in its earlier days, which proved to be very helpful. And now Biden is, seems to be more in bed with the his competitors who are trying to catch up in the EV space that are run by unions and Tesla's non-union. And so they're kind of leaving Tesla out in the cold a little bit and some of their recent events and whatnot. Um, whistleblower to continue testimony in the Elizabeth Holmes trial, former Theranos employee Erica Chung will testify <clears throat> in the Theranos trial. That will be interesting. And New York Times has a headline few hours ago, smartphones may be too good. Smartphones have been so successful that it's possible new technology won't be able to displace them. Mm, Zuckerberg would argue differently about VR and whatnot. And I, I have to imagine they reference VR and AR. I, I mean, 
this on the face of it, if you look forward any amount of time, 10, 20 years, we've had predictions by people who are in this space who say that contact wearing AR, where basically your phone only takes up a very small view of your eyes, right? I mean, it's a small box in your whole field of vision, quite small. Wouldn't it be optimal if you could imagine in the far future where a contact lens and your phone interface is floating in the air, you know, arm's length in front of you. Everything that you would want as a dashboard is just floating magically in the air. That's going to happen. That's coming. I think by then, though, Tyler, it's going to be BCI. Well, my point is, however it's done, either by BCI or by a contact lens, or in the short term, it'll be done via glasses. There's already glasses. Google Glass started doing that 10 years ago. But make no mistake, geeks and innovators are going to manifest that reality guaranteed. There's billions of dollars and some of the world's smartest people all working on that, committed to doing that until it happens. So it's going to happen. So embrace that inevitable reality. So the question is, when that happens, whenever it happens, maybe it's 100 years. I can assure you it's less than 100 years. Experts estimate between 10 and 20. So let's call it 20. Are we still going to have smartphones when we have that in 20 years? So to, to reflect back to this headline from the New York Times, smartphones have been so successful it's possible new technology won't be able to displace them. Huh? Do you not realize what's coming in 10 to 20 years that will make smartphones look like fax machines where you'll be able to think a thought and have it appear holographically so realistically floating in front of you as a 3D uh, model, as an AR object? Uh, What What I think is more likely is that where's the processing power for any of these UBIs or the uh, glasses or for the contact lenses? You know, there, there needs to be a processing unit for that. And that's that's where phones are going to go to, I believe. It's like that for, for a period, they're going to be the battery source for the, the processing edge computing, unit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because that needs to happen somewhere and you can't plug all of that like in, into your head. Yeah, I, I'm just I don't. It's not a geek who wrote that. I and, just, and I just, with, I just with, don't like geeks the, writing headlines about tech. That no, you're you're right because they can't predict five years. They're they're now, having trouble digesting know? what's happening right now. So to yeah. say, smartphones are so successful, it's possible new technology won't be able to especially, displace them. Especially with the that's just era. a very a very right error now. logically error filled uh, headline. Uh, for the New York Times. You need more geeks writing at the New York Times. I understand geeks don't want to work there anymore because it's become, you know, kind of uh, unwelcoming. New York Times, you're not very welcoming to geeks. You make us feel uncomfortable and uneasy and unwelcome and unequal and uh, excluded. So maybe that's why you're having a hard time writing articles about tech. Just a thought. I remember... I remember about literally, it was probably like 18 or 20 years ago at the Javits Center in New York, I actually met a guy who was working on these glasses where you actually would just kind of, you know, on the corner of these glasses, you would look left um, and you would see your phone or your computer or whatever. And, you know, it was kind of big and clunky and you had to kind of have the strap. I walked around with it 
this is 20 years ago. I walked around with that at the Javits Center with those glasses, and I couldn't believe the technology back then was just so awesome. I couldn't wait to see it. But, you know, only now, like you said, just maybe, you know, 10 years ago, they started coming up with these glasses that now, you know, they have them. But it's it's inevitable, and I can't wait for it to come because, um, you know, it's, it's part of where the future is going to go. And I think it's going to be a great thing. But I saw a little bit. I got a little glimpse of how this can look. I mean, I, I experienced it myself in these glasses. And it was just incredible back then. So I can't even imagine what they're doing now. I think uh, Tyler's been taken. His Sorry about that. Probably. Thank you, Carl. The BBC headline says Facebook under fire over secret teen research as it had evidence Instagram was harmful place for young people, but failed to share its findings. And so the BBC is reporting on the Wall Street Journal. And this is what journalists do is they start to dogpile uh, on big tech. And in this case, the jury's I, I don't know that it's still out. I, Facebook. We have to wait for Facebook's comment. I'm going to withhold. I mean, I haven't really withheld judgment. I, I, I'll i be the first to admit I, I've kind of uh, come out as claiming Facebook's guilty here. But I am eagerly awaiting Facebook's uh, comments about this. In in the kind of court of public opinion, they deserve a uh, to have their, their say. Uh, although the head of Instagram did take to Twitter to, and he didn't, he said it paints them in a negative light, but he didn't really refute it either. Um, it's it's interesting, it, but more importantly, let's see what they do with it going forward. But that isn't really the issue. The issue is they knew, and they anyway, it's complex. But there could be it's the 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 real interesting revelation today. Uh, the Wall Street Journal didn't really have a new fifth day in a row of headlines, although there's more to come for sure, as they've said. But the new revelation is that there already is uh, Congress members already trying to uh, make movements to address this as a result of the Wall Street Journal's articles. So um, Bitcoin protest in El Salvador. And we covered that. And Tomoko from Japan sends in one about our friend Masayoshi-san, the head of SoftBank. Masayoshi-san at SoftBank SoftBank World 2021 talked about the key to recover Japanese economy is smart robots. Many know how Pepper failed, which was SoftBank's robot. Yet TV series a bit ago sponsored by SoftBank that already showed robot with... That's my comment. I've seen the the Japanese robot. Yeah, I'm reading your comment, Tomoko. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And but um, Masa Masayoshi-san at SoftBank, one of the world's biggest tech investors, maybe the biggest, quite quite possibly the biggest, um, is also has what he calls a three hundred year plan, <clears throat> and he doesn't look ten to twenty years in the future with you know the contact lens scenario we were just describing. He claims he looks three hundred years in the future, and that's how he does his billion dollar investments. And he sees a world full of robots. And so he's, and he says at their own big event that they just had, that uh, the key to Japanese economy recovery is smart robots. And he is probably right in the case of Japan. Japan loves robots. They're going to embrace robots. So, um, and that could be a, a huge benefit for them. They've been, they've had a head start on robots for a very long time. Um, so if they continue and really focus on that, 
China's dealing with their declining birth rate. And if they don't fix it, they might be very uh, keen um, buyers of Japanese robots technology if, because different countries can focus on different things. Israel is a world leader in cybersecurity. Um, some other, you know, fintechs uh, are disproportionately based in London and Stockholm and a few other places. San Francisco does what it does. There's different areas that focus on AI. Other areas focus on crypto. If Japan really dives deep into robotics and other people, and they, they are the first to need them because they have the world's oldest population, that could be their financial windfall in a way if, it, if, the, rest of us don't, um, if the rest of us don't follow along. So he, I think he could be right. It could be very interesting. And, and um, especially because many of Japanese companies do not raise uh, any personal risk in English. So that may, um rest of the world haven't much realized that how much Japanese uh, robots has been in, um, advanced yeah. already. But yeah. um, one of the researcher in robot I've been discussing a couple of times actually moved from um, um, California to, to Japan to do the research because she's, he thought Japan is the most advanced um, researched in the um, robot area. So that I do also believe that the robot is one of the, the solution for us to have the, the solve the, the aging society. Yes, so Tomoko is right. As every Japanese person knows, Japan has, as I said, a huge head start on automation. They've had fully automated restaurants, lots of them, for a very long time. So, I mean, the rest of the world's just starting to get into the automated restaurants. They just announced in the past 48 hours, um, one of the convenience stores are going to become cashierless, a, thousand, a thousand of them as a test, and then no doubt they will be all cashierless very soon. Japan loves this type of stuff. So I, I don't... And also I think culture-wise they prefer predictability. Yeah, and, and the efficiency of it. Both both sides yes. like it. The, the, the restaurant owner really likes having the automated uh, restaurant, and the customer actually, in a way, in some sense, prefers it. So it's uh, it's they're going to really lead in this auton full automation robotization. They even, I mean, they fetishize robots there. Just to give you, it's don't one of the only countries that like, you know, uh, fetishizes robots to the degree that it, they are the uh, movie and and comic book heroes are robots. It, you know, it's, this it's hard to overemphasize how much Japan and and dears are uh, look, you know positive positive associations with robots so um that takes us to the top of the hour oh one last one this is a doozy ford and argo ai partnered up to do autonomous taxis and now the headline from cnet says ford and argo ai will deliver your walmart order in an autonomous car the autonomous delivery service will launch in three cities to start and includes groceries and other popular items ordered online. And I told, did I tell you so? Did I tell you? I told you. How many times did I tell you? I told you at least 10 times this was coming. And now here's the headline. September 15th. Ford and Argo AI will deliver your Walmart orders in an autonomous car. The autonomous delivery service will launch in three cities. Which cities? 
Austin, Miami, Washington, D.C. may receive their next Walmart or citizens of Austin, Miami, and Washington, D.C. may receive their next Walmart order from an autonomous car. On Wednesday, Ford and its self-driving technology partner, Argo AI, announced a new last-mile delivery service with Walmart. The three companies will launch the service in three cities as a pilot program as each looks to expand their footprint with these sorts of emerging operations. There it is. Here it comes. So Tyler, Tyler uh, I was going to just say, you said Washington, yeah. D.C., and and there's going to be a big rally at the weekend, and Capitol Police are being helped by National Guard. Okay. I thought you might. <clears throat> so another... On this, on this automation, though, you know, I, I, I know from the top down it looks really good, but do you think this is going to be a challenge, like making sure that the recipient's actually there? I don't think so. You're going to know that car has left, is ready to leave the facility. Are you ready to receive it? The kind of thing. I think that's. I know. I know, but like right now it's convenient. But when we get back to work, you know, we're used to showing up and it's on our porch or it's been yeah. stolen, you know. They're going like, to have two things. Having to I... coordinate with There's the a lot vehicle. of. Go ahead, Lakeisha. Uh, real quick, there's there's a lot of solutions underfoot with uh, smart locks to lock objects to your near your front door area, lockers in front door areas, uh, getting access to your trunk of your car as a holding space, and uh, different cities have different solutions. But there's no shortage of thoughts on that, so I don't think we're going to get blindsided on that front. Like pizza makes sense. You have to be there to get a pizza. Yeah, I was just going to add to Tyler's point. I know um, maybe a year ago, 18 months ago, Amazon was experimenting with that, you know, in, in terms of actually leaving packages inside of people's homes. Some of my colleagues, um, you know, helped to build out that project. So I anticipate that they are, you know, kind of looking into those types of solutions if this were to roll out. But the autonomy solves the human driving the vehicle problem, but you still have the last meter issue. And so you usually need to be there to receive it in real time or that autonomy doesn't give you any advantage because all of a sudden they have to schedule it to know when you're there. And maybe that's the solution. Maybe that's the solution. But like I said, it's just, you know, it, it's not like a complete, like this is over solution yet until there's a little Johnny five robot or whatever that comes out and drops it at your door. Yeah, they'll definitely communicate with the receiver before they start the journey, Chris. No worries. Okay. So it also mentions that Ford and Argo AI already worked with Walmart in the past, and the automakers also busy testing autonomous cars with Lyft in Miami, which is also one of the three cities. So Miami has, through Ford and Argo AI, Lyft autonomous taxis and autonomous deliveries. Here it comes. And my, it's not a coincidence that it's Miami because Miami is the mayor there, Antonio Suarez, or if I get his, I written his name correct, um, really wants to show that they are, you know, the new Silicon Valley and they're trying to become very geek friendly. And uh, this is one way to do that for sure. So that brings us to the top of the hour, just past the top of the hour. So we will meet again in six hours with a whole bunch of new headlines. And thank you to everybody for another fun Headline filled tech news around the world. Hey, boom. Happy you, Thursday, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.